series uh, we just started last week, Seeing Jesus from the Beginning. I thought it'd be kind of cool as we're preparing a great reading from Luke 2, as we're preparing for the coming King, as we're preparing for Jesus. Uh, we're setting our minds to remember that even though we're preparing for the coming of Jesus, he's always been. He's always been present. He's always been. Jesus is all. God is the I am. He always is. What did we say a few weeks ago? He's the eternal now. So we're going through Genesis, and we're kind of just four weeks looking at like high mark storylines. We did Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden last week, and we, we talked about how Eden was forfeited by what we call the fall, by this rebellion, this sin, this selfishness from Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God. They tried to, to take this. God wanted to give this gift of life, and they tried to seize it on their own terms, control it in their own ways. And they were exiled from Eden, it was forfeited, it was lost, and then really we've got this giant story that we actually are now a part of, we're living into, and so much of the story is, will humanity be restored back into that Eden blessing? Which is kind of the backdrop for what we'll talk about with Abraham. And what I've been trying to do, I did last week and I'll do again this week hopefully with some success, is help you see, because as Christians we read I mean, we read the Bible to encounter Jesus, right? Jesus is the living God, and he is life and salvation. We, we worship Jesus, and we, we learn about him. We can often meet him in the story of the Bible. And, and we read, particularly as we're in Genesis, we read the Old Testament as Christians, and we can, we can go looking for Jesus. If we didn't have the New Testament, we probably wouldn't know how to do this. But because we do, we can go looking for Jesus in the Old Testament and there are unhealthy ways of doing this, but there are very healthy ways of doing this. And so that's what I'm trying to do as we go through Genesis. I'm trying to un unveil for you some of these major themes of the drama of the biblical story, what we would call salvation history. Uh, you know it's a major theme when it's introduced in the book of Genesis and finds its uh, kind of climax or culmination, I should say, in the book of Revelation. So these themes that we're looking at, you'll, you'll find them in Genesis and you'll find them in Revelation, but they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So they're really important themes, and we're going to look at a couple of those themes, probably not too detailed because Abraham's life is big. It's, I mean, we, we I could do a whole series on just seeing Jesus in the life of Abraham. I mean, he's a major character. <laughs> um. So we'll, we'll kind of cover a lot of ground, and we won't get to go super in-depth on anything. But we're tracing these themes, but we're also, I told you, we're also going to actually, like, see Jesus, because <laughs> we can do that, um, particularly because as we read the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when you can see God... <laughs> You're seeing Jesus. And so we can read the Old Testament as Christians and go looking for Jesus. And we'll obviously talk about a few verses that are pretty well known. And I, I'm actually going to read through a couple stories from the life of Abraham that you probably don't spend much time thinking about. I, I had a lot of fun just kind of getting into the story this week. But we're going to start. We're going we're gonna to be all over the place so you can follow along with the slides. If you've got a Bible, you're going to be flipping around with me. And if you've got a phone, you're going to have to be like getting from book to book to figure out where you're going, but, but you can do it. We'll start in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. This is kind of really where it kicks off. One day, Terah, 
The father of Abraham took his son. It says Abram because Abram and Sarai are going to have their names changed to Abraham and Sarah. I'm just going to call them Abraham and Sarah for simplicity this morning. So Terah takes his son Abraham and his daughter-in-law Sarah and his grandson Lot, and they moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. They were on their way to Canaan, but they stopped. They don't go all the way. I want to start a little bit by talking about Ur of the Chaldeans. It may sound like an obscure place to you, but it wasn't in Abraham's day. It was about 4,000 years ago was Abraham's day. And Ur was maybe perhaps the most advanced and sophisticated city in the world. Uh, So they're leaving a place of comfort and advancement. In fact, um, they were advanced culturally. We know this from some of the history that we have and the artwork. But it's also quite possible, probable, that they had some sort of sewer system and even an ancient version of running water. So not a bad place to live. And Terah and Abraham and their family, they're going to leave this place. We're going to read in just a second in Hebrews, Abraham's going to live in tents. (laughs) He could have had running water and he's going to spend the rest of his life camping out. Now, Terah, we don't know a ton about Terah, uh, Abraham's father. Uh, Jewish history tells us he was an idol maker. Uh, The Bible doesn't go quite that far, but in Joshua 24, verse 2, I don't have a slide for this, but we're told that Terah worshipped other gods. Terah worshipped idols. And so if your dad worshipped idols growing up in Ur of the Chaldeans, then Abraham grew up worshipping other gods worshiping idols. That's what his father did. That's what everyone around him did. That's what he did. And this is kind of the theme I want to draw out here. The land of the Chaldeans later became known as the land of Babylon. Actually, we would probably call it southern Babylon. The Abraham stories present him as coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans, as coming out of Babylon. It's one of those things, I'm not going to develop it a ton here. It's actually one of these things that I wasn't taught very much early on in my Bible studies. But it is a major, major theme. I never even realized how, I mean, the more as, I, as I've been reading, as I've been alerted to this theme, uh, this theme of Babylon's a big deal. And that's kind of why I want to draw it out a little bit this morning, because I, I do want you to be paying attention in your own Bible reading to where this idea of Babylon an empire comes up because it'll come up again and again. And obviously in Revelation chapter 18, you have the fall of Babylon. You got a whole chapter about this major, major theme. So the point now is that Abraham is coming out of Babylon. He's been schooled in the ways of Babylon. And Abraham is going to become known as the father of monotheism. And so he's going to have to do a lot of unlearning. He's going to have to unlearn a lot of what he's learned in Babylon about idol worship and and the ways of Babylon. And he's been trained and he's got a toolbox full of tools from Babylon and the means of Babylon. And that means he's, he's probably good at exploiting his neighbor. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you'll see as you, as you watch this theme of empire and Babylon unfold in the Bible. It's counter to the kingdom of God. And I think it's an important theme because I've used this language here across you. You and I live in modern day Babylon. (laughs) And sometimes it's hard to talk about modern day Babylon because 
Uh, honestly, sometimes it's just hard to talk about it because our world is so, our nation is so politically charged right now that you begin to talk about some of the challenges and sometimes we just, we can't hear each other because we're so politically driven in how we think about things. And so I actually think talking about Babylon using biblical terms frees us from some of that. <laughs> it actually maybe helps us find a place of unity. We can agree, yeah, that's modern day Babylon. Yeah, the Bible talks about, I see that happening. It doesn't matter about the political party. I see that happening in our world today, and I can name it as something outside of the kingdom of God. And we, again, we won't go deep into the life of Abraham because we just have one Sunday, but if you follow through, Abraham is a man of faith, but he also has a lot of Babylon he's got to get out of him. And part of the drama of Abraham, if you read, beginning kind of in Genesis 12, if you kind of want to read through Genesis 25 on your own this week, You'll see that Abraham leaves Babylon, but Babylon doesn't fully leave him. And he gets himself in a lot of trouble because he's not conditioned to just receive the grace and love of God and just receive by faith the blessing. He's always trying to, and we'll talk even more about this next week with Jacob, Abraham finds himself in these situations where he's trying to control the blessing. He doesn't trust that God will keep him secure, so he tries to control his own security. And he will manipulate people. He will even put his wife. At, I mean, he does all kinds of stuff because he's still got a lot of Babylon in him. And he's got to get rid of the means of Babylon if he's going to learn the way of faith that God wants him to learn. And part of Babylon, I mean, if I, if life and death, and we'll even talk about this more in our next series in Deuteronomy, but, uh, but a, lot of the way, if you, this theme, a lot of the theme of Babylon is, is that we operate by the means of death rather than life. And so God wants to invite us out of this, this trap of Babylon into someplace new. So we're going to go to Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews a little bit because uh, Abraham gets talked a lot about in the New Testament. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You don't know where you're going? I've been in a bunch as a follower of Jesus, and I will tell you, if you ask me, I love to tell you how I didn't know where I was going 20 years ago and how God led me, but I hate to talk about it when I'm in the midst of it. It's kind of, it's kind of scary when you're in the midst. Maybe some of you are right now. You're in a season. God is leading you. Maybe, maybe you're even at church, and you don't even know how you ended up at church this morning, but you're here. And it feels a little scary. It feels a little unknown. That's pretty normal when you're on the journey, when God calls you and you don't, you don't always know. You just go by faith. That's part of how the Bible helps us understand what faith looks like. Verse 9, and when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. Faith isn't a one-time thing. It, it marks all of our life from morning to evening. We, just, we live by faith. It says here, because he was like a foreigner. He was living in tents as did his son Isaac, and we'll talk about Jacob next week, who inherited the same promise. Verse 10, Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. So this is kind of what I've been 
talking about a little bit. Abraham's got this lifelong quest. He's never fully settled. He's always on the move. He's, he's a man looking for something, searching for something. And I know that there's some of you here today who you feel that. I'm, they've got this situation. I've got this circumstance. Maybe it's just my life in general. I feel lost and I'm searching for something. I know there's something more. Abraham is, in a sense, we could say, I mean, very clearly, he's looking for Jesus, even though he doesn't fully know that yet. He's looking. He's searching. Uh, we love, I love to talk about the way the Bible talks about human civilization because it's really important as we get into talking about the kingdom of God and Jesus. The Bible talks about civilization. The first city begins with Cain. Cain and Abel create their two brothers and they are divided. We'll talk a lot about the division of brothers and of nations today as we go through the story of Abraham. Cain kills his brother and he becomes the founder of the first city. So the way that we understand human civilization in the biblical story is that our founder, the person who set up how we arrange ourselves in community, is a murderer. <laughs> and we could go even farther. I'm not going to take the time, but you get into the founder of Babylon is a guy named Nimrod. There's a whole thing there, and the name itself speaks for itself, right? Nimrod. But, but the point is, Abraham knows a lot about Babylon. He knows a lot about human civilization. He knows about Cain and Cain's way of violence and killing his brother to get what he wants. But Abraham wants a new architect. He wants a new home. He wants a city built by God. And Jesus is the one building what Abraham was always looking for. Again, I love to talk about the kingdom of God as Jesus rearranging the world giving us a new home, a new way of being in the world. Maybe Abraham couldn't have fully articulated it, but he's looking for the kingdom of God. We could say he's, he's longing for the new Jerusalem, the city of the Lamb. He could see it only by faith from afar because it wasn't under construction yet. But when the true seed of Abraham comes, and we'll look at those verses in a few minutes, when the, when the true seed of Abraham comes, that's when Jesus begins the work, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the city that Abraham longed for, whose architect and builder was God himself. And again, this theme, it runs through the Bible. It, it finds its kind of culmination in the book of Revelation because Revelation is then giving you very clearly a, a, an alternative to Babylon. You have this longing. You know there must be something more. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. There, it ought to be different. There's something out there. And so the book of Revelation presents us with this beautiful picture of what we call the New Jerusalem. It's God's alternative to Babylon. Babylon is seductive. It comes with a lot of powerful allurements. And so you and I, our hearts long for something greater, a greater attraction, an alternative. And it's the New Jerusalem. It's the kingdom of God. It's the city of the Lamb. A place where human community lives in love, in harmony, in security, in prosperity with God living among us. The new Jerusalem represents a city truly worth belonging to. And so even you and I find ourselves longing for that, right? A city where we can call home, a city where we feel truly safe and known and we know others. And of course, that's, hopefully that's some of why you're here at church this morning. Because the church is meant to be the anticipation. Riley talked about the first advent and the second advent, the second coming of Jesus at the second coming of Jesus, that's when we will know the new Jerusalem for eternity. It'll be awesome. But now in our anticipation, the church is meant to be this kind of place. 
I mean, we got the Christmas decorations up, and it's a great time of the year, but I know that some of you, I know because I know stories, I know that some of you, you feel homeless during this season. Whether it's division within your family, whether it's somebody you deeply love passed away in the last year or two. But you're longing, you're longing for a place where you feel known and secure, and the church is meant to be that place. A, 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 an experience of the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God here on earth, where we, where we don't have division, but we have unity. And we love each other. We don't exploit one another. We serve one another. No one's seeking to be master over others because we're all seeking to wash one another's feet in the kingdom of God. A radical different place. And that's, that's what Abraham was longing for, that kind of community. We long for that kind of community. And, and it takes a little bit of work. We'll keep talking about what does it look like. But I just want to point out the theme of Babylon. It gets introduced here in Genesis. I want to go to the next major part. It is a major part of the biblical story. Right? It's kind of God's big movement in Genesis in light of the fall and the exile from Eden. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we get this blessing. It's God's trying to, to find ways to bring this Edenic blessing to all the world. So Genesis 12, we get this calling we read about in Hebrews. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And here's the blessing, the promise. I will, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Very famous passage. But if you've been reading through Genesis up to this point, by the time you get to Abraham, as I've said, you have a portrait of humanity as a collection of divided siblings. There, there's division among the nations. Humans are not living in harmony, and they are not living in right relationship with the Creator God. And so God does something, and He begins a conversation with Abraham, and He blesses him. And then He, he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and through you all the families of the world will be blessed. So when people do good to Abraham, they're going to get even more goodness coming back to them than they ever imagined. There's just this, again, the, the, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of scarcity, which is why we're so often told to not be afraid. It's, it's a kingdom of abundance. And, and maybe you know, maybe there are, I hope there are, I know there's people like this across you. I hope there are some people in your life who are kind of like this. You just, you get around them. They're just people of blessing. There's just, you're with them and it, it just, the room seems a little bit lighter. And the air seems a little bit easier to breathe. And there's just a little bit more hope in the conversation. And there's joy and there's connection and there's, there's just blessing that goes around. God is creating through Abraham and his family what we could call an economy of generosity. And we're going to look at this as we keep going. But, but it just seems like there's always enough to share with each other. And this family of Abraham is going to become a vehicle of divine blessing that exponentially explodes. It's what we're going to see. So, but what we need to do then is, what does this blessing look like? And so this, the author of Genesis, Moses, is going to give us some stories. And maybe these stories we'll look at are stories you don't know as well, but they're, but they're stories that actually do, they're not just there to tell us details of Abraham's life. They're, they're teaching us what blessing looks like. So the next verse I want to read is in Genesis chapter 13, verse 18. It's the last verse in chapter 13. Abram moved his camp to Hebron, 
And he settled near the oak grove belonging to Mamre, and he built another altar to the Lord. Uh, If you were with us last week, we talked about the tree of life and how this this theme of trees unfolds. Go back and read Genesis. They're all these what I want to call micro-Edens, and it's by intention from the author. They're micro-Edens. God is kind of trying to reverse the curse and kind of work, you know, against the fall here and, and kind of bring salvation to people. And, and Abraham is going to be traveling through the land and he's going to have in the, prom, in the promised land, he's going to have all these experiences of the presence of God. And they're often marked by being in a, in a vineyard, in a garden, in, 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 a, in, in a little mini forest, in a group of trees. There's a tree present and God's present and he's worshiping God. So Genesis 13, 18, we see that he's, he's kind of in this micro-Eden in the story. And then Genesis 14, I'm not going to read through it. You can read it on your own, but I'll I'll summarize it for you. There's a great outbreak of violence among the kings of the nations, and it's led by the king of Babylon. Uh, In my translation, it says the king of Babylonia, but if you have a different translation, it might say the king of Shinar. That's what Babylon was called. The people build uh, the Tower of Babel, Babylon in in the Valley of Shinar. And Abraham's family left Babylon at the beginning of this story. And the culmination of this first part is about the king of Babylon now following the family of Abraham. The king of Babylon gets a big coalition and comes over to where Abraham is. And so Abraham, as I said, leaves Babylon, but, but then Babylon leaves to come to Abraham. It's hard for Abraham to get away from Babylon. And you read through the, the chapter, you have all these kings and their armies and they're fighting Canaanites and there's battle rampaging through the land and these five Canaanite kings come out to battle these other kings led by the king of Babylon and, and there's a, they flee and, and, and Abraham, Abram's nephew Lot is there and he's captured. And you're reading through this and you're wondering, where is Abram in the midst of all of this? All this fighting is breaking out in the valley, and Lot has been captured. What is Abram doing? What, and what is the story doing in Genesis? What's it teaching us? Well, Genesis 14, 13, this is the one verse I'll read from the chapter. One of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram, the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre, the Amorite. All right, Mamre's an Amorite. He's, that's a subset of the Canaanites. In other words, he's of the nations. And here, Abraham is kind of just resting. We could, we could maybe say he's chilling in the oak grove belonging to Mamre, this Amorite, this Canaanite. So what's this story doing? Why does Moses include this story? Well, what's going on? Well, Abram's at rest And he's living the good life by a tree with this Canaanite, this this Mamre representing the nations. And the Canaanite kings and the people who aren't in relationship with Abraham are, are fighting one another and they're falling into tar pits and Lot's getting captured. So there's war in the valley and there's blood and there's violence, but Abraham's up in the garden place. So you have the violence of the nations down low in the valley, but up on the high place near the tree, you've got Abraham at rest. And you see the beginning of the nations being blessed. That's why the story's here. Because Mamre, this, this Canaanite, this Amorite, because he's in fellowship with Abraham, 
he's invited into actually his, his plot of land he owns becomes a micro Eden. And now Abraham's blessing is beginning to extend out beyond his family. That's what's happening here. The Canaanites unconnected to Abraham are taken out in battle. And the ones connected to him are experiencing Eden and the Eden blessing with Abraham. Again, it's a foreshadowing of the way that Abraham will become a blessing to the nations. So you start to see this, again, this this contrast of division and conflict versus peace. This way of peace. Actually, I think it's very, I kind of want to talk a little bit about this because we often talk during Advent about Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And, and peace can mean a lot of different things, but if we allow the Bible to unfold in Genesis, this is the beginning of what we long for, this kind of peace where we can live in harmony with all the nations because of the blessing of God coming through Abraham. But it does raise the question for me, how does Abraham, because he's got so much Babylon in him, how does Abraham learn this way of peace, this way of life? This way of wisdom, what we call sometimes the way of love, the way of Jesus. And I really think as I was kind of just even reviewing this week the story of Abraham, I think he learns it the same way you and I learn it, by spending time with Jesus himself. So two verses to read here, Genesis 12, verse 7. I could read a few more. I kind of already kind of foreshadowed this earlier in the sermon. Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. And he, and he makes this promise, I'll give this land to your descendants. And Abram builds an altar and dedicates it to the Lord who had appeared to him. Or how about Genesis 18, verse 1? I wanted to do even more with Genesis 18 because this is an awesome story of the Lord appearing. But I'll just read verse 1. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre that we read about in chapter 13. And Abraham, well, it goes on to talk about how he's sitting and these three visitors come. And it's just really, it's a really cool story. But my, I, I said this earlier, the New Testament tells us any, the, the, the image of the invisible God is Jesus. So here are these crazy stories where we as Christians read this. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Now, it doesn't go into detail about what that looks like, but Abraham's meeting with Jesus. <laughs> so we're tracing themes, but we're also we're seeing G- Jesus has always been. That's why we talk with this fancy theology word around the time of Christmas, the incarnation. God is becoming man. Jesus isn't becoming into existence at Christmas. He's always been. But he's choosing to enter into our world and into our suffering so that he can give us life. That's why in John chapter 8, I mean, again, this is another whole great story which you could read on your own, but, but Jesus is talking to the Jews, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. And he says, he saw it and was glad. And they say, what are you talking about? You aren't even 50 years old. Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. So when the Lord is appearing to Abraham, I think it's Jesus. In fact, I feel even better about that because if you read through the New Testament, some of my favorite passages in Paul's work is when he'll quote the Old Testament and, and the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, will be there and Paul will freely replace the name Yahweh with the name Jesus. That's some of how we read the Old Testament as Christians. We see Jesus because he's there. All right, next story. We're going to look at another story that's probably not as familiar to you. We're going to be in Genesis 21, verse 22. 
But we meet a character, his uh, King Abimelech in Genesis 20, another fascinating little, uh, this is where we can call Abraham a turkey, actually, Genesis 20. He meets King, King Abimelech, and he, he's always trying, again, he's trying to control his own security and safety. And so he's actually play, he actually plays the part of the serpent. It's kind of, these, these stories play out, and, and Sarah kind of becomes the tree that looks good. And then here, King Abimelech, is, is the, he's the Adam and Eve figure who is being tempted. And then Abraham plays the part of the serpent. I mean, he's, he struggles. He, he struggles to seize the blessing for himself. It's one of the things that's unfolding. And so he, he kind of puts Sarah in a difficult place, and, and God intervenes and, and protects because the, the line, the seed, right, the seed that we're waiting for, one who will crush the head of the serpent we talked about last week, fulfill this promise that God has made. So we meet Abimelech. He's in the kind of, I think, near the southern end of Israel. It'd be a town that we would call a Philistine town along the coast. And so Abraham like, starts with a bad introduction to this man, but we're reintroduced to King Abimelech in Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to read through just about 10 verses of this story. About this time, Abimelech came with Phicol, his army commander. So you've got a king and kind of a general of an army. So you've got, again, this is the nations, representing the nations. And they come to visit Abraham, and God is, they, they say this, and again, we, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is the working out of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God is obviously with you. He's helping you in everything you do. I see it. It's clear. You're one of these different people, and it's just this is more hope and joy, and you're just flourishing. Right? That's the Edenic blessing, is that humanity would flourish. So Abimelech says, let's make a covenant. Swear to me in God's name that you will never deceive me, my children, or any of my descendants. It's a good thing to ask because Abraham just deceived him a chapter earlier. I've been loyal to you, so now swear that you will be loyal to me in this country where you are living as a foreigner. Abraham replied, I swear it. And then you get, this is interesting. It's just like, again, if you're just reading through this, what is going on? Why is this in here? So they make this covenant. Don't deceive me anymore. All right, I'm in. And then Abraham complains to Abimelech about a well that Abimelech's servants had taken by force from Abraham's servants. We're going to find out in a few verses. Abraham dug this well himself. <laughs> so again, what's going on? Why is this in here? Well, now, we, again, so much of the background leading up to Abraham is all the division that has happened in the world. And so now we've got a situation. You've got Abraham with a conflict with the nation should get you curious, what's Abraham going to do? How will this blessing of God work itself out? How will God bring the nations together again? What's going to happen? What can we learn from Abraham, who's been spending time with Jesus, learning this new way of being human, this new, Abraham's a new Adam. What's it going to look like? He's not the new Adam, right? We talked about that last week. But what's this going to look like? Verse 26, Abimelech says, well, that's the first I've heard of it. I have no idea who's responsible. In fact, it's interesting you're bringing this up now. Why have you not said this before? Right? That's what he says. Verse 27, Abraham then gave some of his sheep, goats, and cattle to Abimelech, and they made a treaty. They made, they, they, again, they, they formalized this covenant. But then you get verse 28, and I, I think these are very important details as you, as you read through the story. Abraham then also, you could say, above and beyond, took seven additional female lambs, 
and set them off by themselves. It was interesting. What's he doing? That's not normal. Everything else had been normal. So Abimelech, why do you have seven other lambs set apart? What does that mean? That's not what I'm used to. Abraham replied, super interesting, just accept these seven lambs to show your agreement that I dug this well. Fascinating. Abraham, who's the one who did the work, he would say that Abimelech's servants used the means, the tools of Babylon, and stole his well by force, but he is still, he is still going to generously give a gift, a costly gift in order to achieve peace with the nations. Interesting. So he named the place Beersheba, well of the oath, because that was where they had sworn the oath. And those, what happens? Abraham finds a way to make peace with the nations. He's, his abundance, the abundance of, who, of what God has provided for him is allowing him to bring peace into the world. And after making their covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech left with Fecal, the commander of his army, and they returned home to the land of the Philistines. And so then you're reading through this, and again, you're wondering, okay, what does this mean? You get to verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and he worshiped the Lord, the eternal God. It's a micro-Eden. Abraham is blessing the nations, and he's experiencing the presence of God. That's what's being communicated in the story. And we're told, again, because Abraham is a pilgrim, he's a sojourner, he continues to live as a foreigner in Philistine country for a while. He knows what it means to live in exile. So, I kind of said this already, but just in case you missed it, instead of brothers or nations being divided over this conflict over the well, you have the families of the nations coming together in peace. But again, listen for this echoing theme that you would know from knowing the New Testament it requires Abraham to give this costly act of generosity. It requires Abraham to go above and beyond for peace to be established in a broken and hurting world. But the nations are seeking to make peace, make a covenant with God's chosen line. So there's peace among the nations so that God's chosen ones can really be the blessing to the nations. But it's costly. It requires sacrifice and generosity. But as you read through Genesis, Genesis it, 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 that this is what happens for the reversal of the failure of Adam and Eve and the division of the brothers and the division of the nations. And then, as I said, the scene ends with Abraham planting a seed and now there is peace in the land at an Eden tree. I want you to see, it's cool. It's cool, and the Bible's kind of filling in, giving us definition to what, what do these words mean? What does peace mean in the biblical story? And, and then it begins to make you wonder, could it be possible for someone someday, a chosen one someday to come along and bring peace to all the world? And what would that be like? So we jump then, of course, to the New Testament, to Galatians chapter 3. Again, a great chapter on its own, right? But I'm just going to read four verses. Galatians 3, 8 to 9. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. 
And honestly, the word Gentile in the Greek is just nations. So you can read this. When God would make the nations right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So, again, this is how we learn to read as Christians. All who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. I don't know, I just think that's cool. <laughs> what a story. And we're interconnected with humanity 4,000 years ago in Christ Jesus. How about verse 14? Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the nations with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Or verse 16, God gave the promises to Abraham and his child, or your translation might say his seed. That's what the word is. And Paul wants you to see this. Notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children or to his seeds as if it meant many descendants. It says to his child, and that, of course, means Christ. So Paul's understanding of the promise that was made to Abraham is Jesus, the seed that we long for to bring about the true peace that Abraham's just foreshadowing because he's still a bit of a turkey is Jesus Christ himself. You can see him in the story from the beginning. It's so cool. All right, last, last little thing that we'll look at, last theme. A theme that I've been paying a little bit more attention to recently, and I, and I will be honest, on one level, on one level, this probably isn't the, the theme you want to hear preached at Christmas time, but it might be the most important theme you need to hear going into Christmas time. Let's read, actually, let's read, I'm not going to read, you could read Genesis 22, a super famous passage. If you've never read it, read it. My hunch is many of you have read it. I'm, again, just going to read kind of the Hebrew, Hebrews retelling of the story for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 11, 17 and 19. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac, his son, as a sacrifice when God was testing. I want to talk a little bit about this theme of testing. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. That's faith. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. That's the, the author of Hebrews' kind of summary of Genesis 22. I want to talk a little bit about testing. But since we've been talking about birds, I actually have a little testing joke about, you know, the study of birds is ornithology. A college sophomore sweats all semester in anticipation of the notoriously difficult final exam in his ornithology class. Having made what he regards as the ultimate effort, he is stunned when he walks into the classroom to take the exam. There is no blue book, no multiple choice questions, no text booklet at all. Just 25 pictures on the wall, and they are not, and they are, and they are not photos of birds in resplendent color, but pictures of birds' feet. The test is to identify the birds. This is insane, the student protests. It can't be done. 
It must be done, says the professor. This is the final. I won't do it, the frustrated student says. I'm walking out. If you walk out, you will fail the final. Go ahead and fail me, the boy says, heading for the door. Okay, you failed. Tell me your name, the professor demands. The boy rolls his pants up, takes his shoes off to reveal his feet, and says, you tell me. (laughs) But that's how we often think of tests in our world, right? We're so framed by, and I think there's some Babylonian influence in this, but but tests prove our worth. Are we valuable enough for this job or this position or for, for the reputation we seek? That's how tests work often in our world. But in the Bible, tests really are different. I, mean, I, I, I didn't read through every test in the Bible this week, but I have two different trustworthy sources that I feel pretty confident in saying this this morning. The way the biblical tests unfold is that God saves his people. God rescues his people. And then after he's saved them, he invites them to become, as language from this morning, representatives to the nations. Be a part of the blessing of Jesus Christ going out to all the nations. Where there's division, be a part of bringing peace. Where there's hatred, bring love. Where there's injury, bring pardon. Where there's despair, bring hope. That's what God wants to do. And to do that, he wants to become closer partners. And that loyalty, that relationship will then be put to the test. For God, the the rescue comes first. That's what he promised. But I want to be clear, he doesn't test to see if you're worthy of the rescue. The test always comes to a saved or delivered people. That's why gratitude is so central to the Christian life. Everything we do is a response of gratitude for what God has saved us from. You mean we get to go back to Eden? I thought we were exiled. You've made a way back to Eden? Thank you, Jesus. What do you ask? Well, funny you ask. I have things I want you to do. So God is going to ask his people again and again throughout the Bible to trust him and surrender their own ways of creating security for themselves. Just read through Genesis. We'll get more into this next week with Jacob because Jacob is always seizing the blessing on his terms. The test becomes an opportunity to demonstrate your reliance on God's abundant kingdom provision. But it's called a test because it's always a real challenge. Because something in you, this is is one of the things that struck me as I was reading through this. And you see this in Genesis 22. Oftentimes when God leads us down a road that is a test, Something, it, it usually looks like the way of death. It's totally what's happening with I. It looks like the way of death. You, you're, you're wanting me to sacrifice my son. And you think about Jesus on the cross. Could it look more like death than that? But when it's a test of God, you trust him. Even when you don't know where you're going, but you're sure that it's his voice, you trust him and you follow him, even if it seems like you're heading to death or loss or pain or suffering. But that's the only road that leads to life. 
That's the only way you will, you will experience and know the resurrection life that the living God wants to provide for you. But it doesn't come, this is what I mean. I know at Christmas we want to just be happy and life is easy and let me just watch movies and not think about reality and everything's just going to come in a neatly wrapped box that I can open and celebrate. But if I'm going to be honest with you as a shepherd at a church that I'm called to serve, that's on this side of the exile of Eden, that's often not how it comes. God wants to bless us and give us a blessing, but it's going to come on his term and not ours. And that means we are going to have to follow him down some difficult roads, narrow roads, Jesus would say, that look like death. But if we, here's the thing, if we fail the test over and over and over again, it means we are not allowing the Holy Spirit to transform and change us so that we can walk into this Edenic world of blessing where we get to participate and partner with God in what he's doing in the world. And so you might be tested December 2022. And, and, and I'll be honest, my experience, even reading the Bible, it's, it's not like God's like, oh, your life is hard, let me make it harder! No, usually the test is just the reality of the circumstances you're living through in a broken world. But God, because he's always working things for good, is at work in those circumstances right now. And he is testing you. Will you trust him? Will you trust him to do the good that he's promised to do for you? <laughs> or will you try to seize control on your own terms? But if you do, I'm telling you, you won't know the Edenic blessing because you've got to walk through the test. He already loves you. It's not about proving yourself to him. But it is about being changed. What do we like to say? Come as you are, but don't stay there. Don't stay there because if you come as you are and stay there, you got too much Babylon still in you. And you're going to keep living in Babylon with the means of Babylon and the goals of Babylon. And there's no life in that. That's Cain. That's Nimrod. You're a Nimrod. Don't be a Nimrod or a turkey. Be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And follow Jesus. Amen? All right, that's our sermon for this morning. I think that's all I want to say. Um, I want to pray. I want to pray. And then we're going to receive communion together. But let's just, I just want to take a moment and pray. Just if, if you bow your heads, whether you're at home online or here this morning. Uh, first, Jesus, I, I do want to, I want to walk through, because I, I always know there's a variety of people here. Uh, so some of us are here, and we're, we're searching. Like, at the beginning, all, all we heard this morning is Abraham was searching for something more, and that's where I'm at this morning. I understand, Abraham, I'm searching for something more. And maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, and maybe, maybe this morning, maybe for the first time, just the Holy Spirit is at work, and you don't even understand what's happening, but you're gaining clarity. You see the cross on the wall, and something is making sense, and you understand Jesus has died on the cross for your sins and, 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 you're, and, you're, and you're awakening. There's this new life available for you. And you just want to, maybe in your own heart this morning, you just want to cry out, Jesus, Lord Jesus, my Savior, forgive me. Rescue me. And that's where you're at this morning. We want to celebrate with you if that's a prayer you're praying for the first time. Now, I know most of you, and I know most of you have already entered into this covenant of peace with Jesus. And I want to remind you, I want to remind me, you and I, we've been rescued this morning. 
already before this morning. We've been rescued. But God is going to continue to put us to the test. Now, is this something he wouldn't do for himself? No, because we're about to receive communion where we're going to talk about his broken body and his shed blood. Jesus is the one who answers the ultimate test so that death no longer has its sting. So maybe some of us this morning, maybe that's what you want to do this morning is just step back and maybe think differently about the circumstances that you don't want in your life that you can't get out of. And I just want you to think of them as a test from God not to punish you or to make your life more difficult, but rather as an invitation into these micro-Edens that God wants to plant in your life. And so I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me. Would we have the courage and strength to endure these tests? And maybe December doesn't look like all the Hallmark Christmas movies I've been watching But I'm not going to try to control the blessing. I am going to trust you, Jesus. And if you are walking me through a test and I say with Abraham, here I am, send me. Get me out of Babylon and into the new Jerusalem. Jesus, that's our prayer this morning. In your name we pray, amen.